Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Turn with me to the book of Exodus. Yesterday we read that passage from Genesis, the next chapter in that story. Yesterday we started, the scripture deals with a person that begins that story within the story. And now we move now not to a person, but to a group, to a corporate body, Israel. Chapter 19 of Exodus. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate. Hallow them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they get up to the, go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he hallowed, him, he hallowed them, he consecrated them. They washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. 
So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate, hallow themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us. Put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the mount to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke, and there we get the Decalogue. Shall we bow our heads for a moment of prayer? Our Father, we would not come to your word without turning to you that your spirit may interpret and speak to us. Thank you that you have given us this precious treasure. Thank you also that, Father, you give to us your spirit to help us understand. So quicken our hearts and quicken our minds that today we may see and that we may be different because we have seen thy truth. And we shall give thee praise in Christ's name. Amen. Yesterday we were speaking about the fact that Christians have an unusual interest in history more than anybody, any other group of people in the world. We uh, intuitively know that it's important to us. We know it because we believe that there is one God who created everything. You take the secular student in the, in the secular university in this country who studies uh, science and believes that somehow or other the universe that's here and you and me came from some original impersonal source it is a radically different perspective and a radically different view of life. But we believe that it was all started by a loving God who is a heavenly father and the original father, the kind of father a father is supposed to be, and that when he created everything, he had a purpose in mind, and that purpose was good. And when he put us in this, he had good purposes in mind for you and me and that it is supposed to be significant because there is something in us that tells us that we're supposed to count. You can take the poorest, most pitiful piece of human flesh that ever existed and deep down inside him or her, there's something that says, I am important and am supposed to count. Now that is there, so there's supposed to be meaning in this. And we believe that he's the one who will culminate it all, that it had a beginning, it will have an end, and that that end will be good because the one who started it and the one who ends it is good, and because he is sovereign Lord over it, though we may have difficulty seeing it, there is meaning in that general thrust of history that's reported every night by our TV com commentators and reported every, every day in our newspapers. But we say there is a second history that's important, and that is that story within the story. It is the story of God's dealing with his own people, with that people that started with Abraham and developed into Israel at this passage and then ultimately produced John the Baptist and Jesus and then the apostolic church and then the Christian body of believers down through history and that it is in that smaller story, the story within the story, that you are to find the meaning of the larger whole. Now... Uh, we see the importance of all this in some interesting ways. One of the things that intrigues me that I missed for years was the Apostles' Creed and its witness on this. You see, I grew up in the church and learned two things by rote memory, 
And the end result was, I remember getting mixed up on the Lord's Prayer in a church service one day because I'd learned it by rote memory. And so I, I got mixed up. That's a very embarrassing thing for a preacher who can't even say the Lord's Prayer properly on a Sunday morning. But you see, I learned it by rote just listening to the congregation. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And it's a chant. That's the way I learned the Apostles' Creed. We recited it every Sunday. And one day I sat down and thought about it and said, isn't that interesting? It tells us about God. That's what we believe. That's the central belief. It tells us about the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it tells us about the church. But it's interesting in the basic statement of the Christian faith, there are two human beings like you and me. And interestingly enough, there's a woman and there's a man. So that the Christian church cannot stand up and state its faith in abstractions about God. It has to include something human. The eternal intersecting time and the eternal story can't be told apart from time. And the time story can't be understood apart from the eternal. So there's that intersection of these, of the eternal and, and the temporal. And who are these two people? It's interesting. Mary and the mother of Jesus, and I had no problem understanding how she got in there. But as some, you can't tell the story of Jesus without her. It's interesting, you can't tell the story of God without us. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> now, God may be able to tell his story without us, but you can't tell God's story without us. So Mary is there. Now, the other is Pontius Pilate. You know, I sort of resented him being in there because I never he's never been a favorite of mine. And every Sunday morning, millions of people stand up and say, we believe in Pontius Pilate. I sort of resented that. But uh, it's interesting, you can't tell the story of Jesus without Pontius Pilate. And you see, Pontius Pilate represents the larger story, the world, that needs redemption. And Mary represents that particular story, that redemptive stream that provides salvation for a world that's lost. So it is intrinsic, it is inherent within our faith, these two things. And it is that larger story that gives significance to us, and it is the smaller story that gives significance to the whole. Because, you see, the larger story is our reason for existing. Now, uh, that's the thing that is spelled out so beautifully in Exodus 19. God says, now we need to take this a second chapter, and a further step. And so he says, I need a people, not just a family, a man and his family. I need a people. I need an, a, a group of people that can be an example. And what he's building toward, of course, is the kingdom of God, a group of people that are centered in the eternal God and that know him. And so he says to Moses, now let me tell you what, this people that I have redeemed, what I want them, to, what they are to be. And it's interesting, they're redeemed before. Grace always comes first, and it is all his work. He's already saved them, delivered them from Egyptian bondage. Now he says, let me tell you what it means. You are to be a special treasure to me, as we said yesterday. Uh, you're to be like a, a woman who cherishes a very expensive, priceless piece of jewelry. Isn't that interesting? That's what we are to him, priceless treasure. I never come to that, but that I remember in the, in the Song of Songs that the most priceless passages are when he speaks about her, not when she speaks about him. He gets far more delight out of 
out of her than she gets out of him, and that blows my mind. But the reality is God gets far more delight out of us than we get out of him. Now, we think of him as that judge sitting up there waiting to whack us, but you know, he's a father. And you know, a kid doesn't have to do a blooming thing to bring joy to you. The other day we had our first two great-grandchildren. Same day, same time. They may even be redheaded. And uh, <clears throat> they put those two things in my lap. Those kids don't have to do a thing in the world to do something to me. There's exhilaration there. Now, the eternal one, we are a special treasure to him. No way you can ever know what you mean to God. So he says you're a special treasure. But more than that, I called you for a purpose. You're to be a holy nation. You're to be a kingdom of priests. And as we said yesterday, a priest is not a person who works primarily for himself. He's a person who works primarily for others. He serves God by serving others. And so the people of God do not live for themselves. The supreme mark of the people of God is that they live for somebody other than themselves. They live for the God who called them and redeemed them, and they live for the people to whom he's called them. So this stream within that larger stream, this story within that larger story, that's who we are there to reach out to that larger story. That's because it's so oftentimes we move this way instead of this way. And you know that all you have to do is look at your church budget. Am I off base? Now, occasionally I am. I preached in a Presbyterian church two years ago, and 51% of their budget by church law, their church, they established it, goes for someone other than themselves. Now, we are to be a kingdom of priests. We're to live for someone beyond ourselves. That ain't natural. And salvation is supposed to get me to where I can do that. Now, he says, you're to be, you're a special treasure to me, and you're to be a kingdom of priests, and you're to be a holy nation. Now, the first tells us our special relationship with him. The second one tells us what our business is, our mission is. And the third one tells us what it takes to be able to do it. We have to be holy. That's an intriguing word, and I wish we had two or three hours to talk about it. Because, uh, uh, just let me tantalize you for a minute. Do you know that in English, English is made up, of course, English is not an original language. It's a polyglot borrowing. There are three main streams that have provided the vocabulary that you use every day. One of them is Latin, one of them is Greek, and one of them is Anglo-Saxon. Now, when we come to holy, there are two streams that come together. One of them is the Latin, and one of them is the Anglo-Saxon. And the Latin gives us the word sanctification and to sanctify. And Anglo-Saxon gives us the word holy. Now, in Anglo-Saxon, to hallow is the same as in Latin, to sanctify. Now, it's interesting, the words that come with we get more vocabulary here out of Anglo-Saxon than we do out of Latin. Because, you see, we get words like uh, hail, H-A-L-E, hail and hearty, which means sound, whole, well. We get the word heal, comes from the Anglo-Saxon hail. So whatever's wrong with you, if you get holy, you don't have it anymore. Problem's gone. You're well. 
It's interesting, you get the word whole, W-H-O-L-E, the whole shooting match. Now, I, I automatically think of the Hebrew word shalom. Interestingly enough, you get the word H-A-I-L, you know, hail and greeting. Hail, king of the Jews. It's a greeting and a prayer that you'll be well. It really means, I'm not sure, I should have checked this out, didn't think about it until now. Jim, is that where we get the word hello? <laughs> Wouldn't it be interesting if, I don't know whether it's true or not, but if every time you use the word hello, you were saying, I hope you'll be holy. I hope you'll be sanctified. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? But the wealth that is in our language to express it. But let me tell you the funny one. That's where we get the word halibut. Because you see, but means a flounder. A flat fish. And on holy days, you eat flat, you eat fish. So the halibut is the fish for holy day. Uh, now, isn't it interesting how these words come together and they speak of soundness, wellness, rightness. You're what you're supposed to be. Now, we get the word perfect tossed in, but that's a complicating term. Because, you see, we think in Greek categories when we think of perfect. And when we think of perfect, we think it cannot change. It's static. It's set. Because if it could change, then it wasn't perfect to begin with. There's not an iota of a notion like that in the Scripture. When the Hebrew word uses the word perfect, it means it's very good, but it can get better. Because what you're dealing with is not a mechanical or a material thing. You're dealing with a personal relationship. And did you know no matter how good a personal relationship is, time can improve it? Elton and I have been married 50-some years. I wouldn't go back a year because it gets better. Now, that doesn't mean it was, it was imperfect before. I don't, know what you, I don't know how you use that word anymore. But uh, they're, they're the words that have to be translated. And so when Wesley talks about Christian perfection, he doesn't mean you can't change. He means you're well. <laughs> that what Christ died on the cross to do for you has been accomplished within you. Now he says, what he's saying is that you and I are supposed to be like him because there's nothing wrong with God. <laughs> now there's going to be a change when we meet him, when we die, the impact of the fall is going to be taken away. And the creation is going to be redeemed. And our bodies and the part of us that is a part of the creation in that sense is going to be redeemed completely. But every indication I get in the Scripture is that you can have a well heart now. And so he says, I want you to be holy because I am because if you're to represent me in the world, you're supposed to look like me and act like me and talk like me. <laughs> if it's true that when they reject you, they miss me, you need to be very much like me so they're not rejecting you because you're like you. Because if they're going to be judged because they reject you, you need to be enough like me that I'll be able to say, you rejected me when I came in that other person. So you see, this is the role that the body of believers has in our world. Now let me give you a biblical illustration from an individual life. 
which you already heard about in this conference. It's that passage in Isaiah 6, where you get the story, the key story in the life of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. If you've never done it, uh, do you sit down and read long stretches of Scripture at a time ever? If you don't do it, you've cheated yourself. Find you a couple of hours and start with chapter 35 of Isaiah and read to the end of it. It is an incredible thing. It is an incredible thing. I've only gotten on the margin of what's there. I'd like to live to be 150 so I could know what's in the rest of Isaiah. But, uh, it is, but there, here it is. Now, what's the key thing in his life? He was in the temple. And suddenly he finds himself in the presence of God. Now, God comes in the holy places. Special times, and he was manifest, and you know the story. And he heard the seraphim singing, chanting, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. But you see, they're ascribing to him the supreme word that can be said about him. You see, the other words we use are attributes. When we say he's powerful, he's omnipotent, we're talking about an attribute, a characteristic of God. Power is something that he has. When we talk about omniscience, he knows everything. Knowledge is something that he has. It's, a, it's an attribute of him. Uh, when you talk about omnipresence, that's an attribute. He's everywhere. You see, he's not in space. Space is in him. You know, I was getting ready to preach a sermon on the ascension. Didn't have the vaguest notion what to say. And I couldn't figure out what to say. And I thought, well, how far did he go? And how long did it take him to get there? And I thought, you ridiculous idiot. How far is a space question? And he made it. And how long is a time question? And he made that when he made space. So I thought, when he comes back, how long will it take him to get here? How far will he have to go? Well, you can't ask that question about him, which means he didn't go anywhere because where is a space word? Which means he's as present now as he ever was. You just can't see him. Space and time are in him, not him in space and time, or not him the way we do it at the end of time, outside of time. Jim, that fits your sermon, South Carolina, <laughs> about heaven. <laughs> Uh, I heard him preach a sermon on <laughs> pardon and holiness and heaven. <laughs> and it was priceless. But uh, one of the things he talked about is we want to put heaven at the end. But, that's, but the prayer says our Father who art in, he's in it now. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in heaven right now. So you see, we're, we're in him. You don't have to reach out to touch him. Now, this is the kind of God that we worship. He's got all these attributes, but when the Old Testament talks about holiness, it says he is. He doesn't act holily. He is holy. Ani kadosh. I am the holy one. Now, we do all sorts of mystical things with holiness. 
We put halos around the saints' heads and do all sorts of other things. But it is simply who he is and what he is. Now, what is that? Now, notice the reaction when Isaiah hears this, holy, 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 he's holy. You're in the presence of the Holy One. He is immediately aware that he's unclean because God is clean. Hebrew word tame means unclean. So he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And when he says that, he's speaking of a part for the whole. His lips are unclean because he's unclean. What goes out of his lips comes from his heart, and there's an uncleanness in his heart. And so he says, woe is me, I'm undone. When uncleanness meets cleanness, something's got to give. And this kind of cleanness is the kind that can clean up the uncleanness. And the only way the uncleanness can escape being cleaned up is to flee. And he said, I don't want to leave God. Can you do anything about me, O God? And a seraphim takes a coal of fire and brings it and puts it on his lips. And then he says to him, your iniquity has been removed. Your sin has been covered. Now, you know, these terms are entrancing. Uh, Isaiah called it uncleanness and heaven called it iniquity. Let me mention something to you that concerns me about American evangelicalism. I'm part of it. So I'm talking about us. I'm not talking about anybody else. I'm talking about us. Do you know what we have done? I pulled out my Hebrew lexicon, Hebrew dictionary, big thing, Brown Driver and Briggs, and looked up the word for iniquity there. And the word avon, iniquity, it has three meanings. There are three meanings. One, two, three. The first meaning is iniquity. The second meaning is guilt. And the third meaning is penalty, punishment. Now, that's a very simple thing. I do wrong, that's wrong. And I feel bad. I've done wrong. Somebody's got to pay. So you see, the cause is the doing wrong. The consequences are personal. I'm guilty. And socially, i got to pay the penalty. Somebody's got to pay the penalty. Now, do you know what we do in American evangelicalism? I started out doing evangelistic work. I did it. We say that Christ died on the cross to redeem you from three and two, but not one. We say you need to be a Christian, so we heard it last night and yesterday, so you won't go to hell. <laughs> I was fascinated that F.B. Meyer told about in a meeting with a large a group of uh, evangelical leaders in Britain at one time, and they were meeting together, if I remember, there were a dozen of them. And they were relaxing and talking with each other. Somebody said, I'd just be interested. What was the major reason that moved you to Christ? Eleven of the twelve said, fear. I was afraid of the consequences of my sin. Christ died to take care of the consequences of my sin. Now, in our generation, we don't talk too much about that. 
we have psychologists and psychiatrists and psychoanalysts, and we say, you've got to solve that guilt problem inside you. <laughs> so we threaten people with guilt. We don't have to threaten them. They live with it. They say, how do I get rid of it? And the Christian says, you need to be a Christian because Jesus can take your guilt away. That's a consequence. You hear a great many sermons about Jesus being able to take the twistedness out of my heart so that I don't put me first and I put God and other people first. Now, I'm very interested in Isaiah's definition of sin. If you will let me jump to Isaiah 53, because I know this is divinely inspired, but Isaiah is the one who gave it to us. And he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the suffering servant. Greatest picture of, the, of, of, of Christ given anywhere in the Scripture in his atoning work. And at the heart of it, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've wandered. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Did he lay on him our penalty? Yes. Did he lay on him our guilt? He made a provision for our guilt. But he also laid on him the twistedness in us. That's the reason in that final hour Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he knew what it meant to be alienated from his father. Because we've alienated ourselves from our father. We turned our faces from him, and the Father turned his face from the Son. Each one's gone to his own way. Can he take care of the waywardness in me? That's what I need. Did you know that's why he died? That's the first cause. And the wonderful thing is, you get your guilt gone, and you don't have to face any penalties. But better than that, you're right with your father. <laughs> you're compatible with him. You like him. And he likes you. Now, he liked you before you got compatible. But now you can reciprocate. You're loving. You read the Psalms, those priceless passages, where the psalmist is crying out for one heart, a whole heart, to praise his God. He doesn't want any division in his heart. He wants to be holy, holy gods. And the closer you get to him, the more you want that. Well, how are you going to get that waywardness out? You can't. Only he can take that out, but he can conquer it. And he can bring us to the place where we can love him. Love him with all our hearts. That doesn't mean the love can't be improved. It will grow as we walk with him and deepen. But it means he's first. And we'd rather have him than anything else. Now, what is that supreme essence of the character of, of the Holy One? In the Old Testament, it's called holy. In the New Testament, it's called love. But you see, we take the world's definition of love and divorce it from the Old Testament word holy. But if you're going to understand the New Testament concept of the love of God, don't take any of your dictionaries. You go to the Old Testament and learn about the Holy One. 
Now, let me give you two stories that have interested me that uh, sort of illustrate what I want to say. Background for this is that Isaiah 53, 6. What is sin? It's my own way. <laughs> it's my own way. Now, how does that manifest itself? It manifests itself in violations of the Ten Commandments. And that's the reason the next step is a Decalogue. The Decalogue isn't out of date. The, Jesus didn't save us from the Decalogue. The, Jesus saved us so we could live by it. Wesley said that it's ten promises. <laughs> that God's commands, the Father's commands, are promises. And when he says you're not supposed to have any other gods before him, he can unite your heart to where God is supreme. Go through it. You do that. But anyway, what is the essence of it? It's very different from us because, you see, we're self-centered. We're fallen. But we're more than fallen. We're sinful. <clears throat> okay. I remember when I got a first beginning to get a glimmer of this. I was teaching Hebrew. I was reading through the book of Genesis, and I was reading the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Now, I don't know about you, but there are a lot of stories I wish God had left out of the Bible. Some of what's in Exodus 19, you know, I'd be more comfortable if it really weren't there. <laughs> and I bet you got uncomfortable. Some of you got uncomfortable while I was reading it this morning. But you know, as the years have passed, many of the passages that were so uncomfortable for me have become very priceless to me. And uh, that chapter in Genesis is one of them. Now, the scholars split the sections of the stories apart and say, the, the passage where God sits down with Abraham and talks with him and tells him, next year this time you're going to have a son. And the passage where he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, those two stories come from two sources and they don't belong together. Now, as far as I'm concerned, forgive me, but as far as I'm concerned, that's Tommy Rod. Now, that's not a right way for a scholar to talk. I'm not a scholar, then okay. But let me say, you've missed the whole thrust of the story if you split it in two. God comes down to sit and talk with Abraham. What does he want to talk about? Next year, this time, you're going to have a son, and his name's Isaac. Now, what does Isaac mean? It means he laughed. Now, who laughed? It wasn't Sarah and Abraham. It's God rejoicing because of redeeming line. That story within the story is on its way. Now you've got not only Abraham, you've got his son coming. And with that son is the hope of the world. So now, you see, uh, God rejoices and says, next year this time you have a son, and the world is going to have a way of salvation. God gets up and leaves, and Abraham walks along with him. They get to the edge of the camp, and when they get to the edge of the camp, God says, now Abe's my friend, should I tell him where I'm going and what I ha may have to do? He says, yeah, he's my friend. So he says, Abe... They tell me Sodom and Gomorrah are in a mess down here. And if they're as wicked as they say they are, I'm going to have to do something about it. Abe says, Sodom, Gomorrah, I got a nephew down there. Now, your text says that when they got to the edge of the camp and God had told Abraham about what might happen to Sodom and Gomorrah, your text in mind says, 
And Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Now, reading the English, I thought, yeah, I'd stand yet before the Lord too. I've got a nephew and his family down there and they're about to be burned to a crisp. I want to say, isn't there some way, God, we could negotiate on this thing? <laughs> and as I read it in Hebrew, I noticed in Mark, footnote. So I looked down at the footnote and what I found was T-I-Q, S-O-P, for Tikkun Hasoferim. And for the first time, I learned about the transmission of the Hebrew text. You see, well, they had no printing. Everything had to be done by hand. And it uh, took a long time to copy a manuscript. And when a scribe uh, was copying away, there was no coffee. And the light wasn't too good. And so, uh, you know, scribe, half asleep. He'd repeat a line, or he'd skip a word, or he'd misspell a word. Do you know that I always, wait a minute, if it's important, I always reread any letter that I write and send in handwriting. Because do you know what I'll do and never know I do it? I'll put T-H-E-I-R for T-H-E-R-E, or else T-H-E-R-E for T-H-E-I-R, and I know very well the difference between the two but I do it unwittingly. Okay, a good Hebrew manuscript is full of mistakes. There is no such thing as a perfect Hebrew manuscript because they're transcribed by a human being. But you see, that text is sacred. So sacred that no scribe is permitted to make any correction in a text. When it is a very obvious mistake, the scribe is not holy enough to change that holy text because before he sat down to copy, he washed his hands because you don't touch holy things with unclean hands. And when he finishes copying, he washes his hands because you don't put hands that have holiness on them on common things. So you can't change that text. That means that sometimes the text is in unreadable. So at that point, the scribe puts in the margin, and you have what is called the kativ, the written, that's the text, and in the margin you get the kare, the red. So when you read the text and it doesn't make sense, you look over at the red and know how to read the written. Now, but do you know there are about 18 to 20 places where the scribes changed the text? Now, most of those changes were for euphemistic reasons. Like somebody going to the bathroom and the children in synagogue would laugh if that were read in church. So it's covered, you know. We do that in English. But there's... One or two that may be done for something other than euphemistic reasons. And the tradition is, says that this one originally said this. It said, and when they got to the edge of the camp and God had told Abraham, I may have to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, that the text said originally, this is what the tradition says, and Yahweh and God stood yet before Abraham. I thought, that's fascinating. Why would the scribes want to change that? Do you know why the scribes wanted to change that? Because in that world, no king ever stood in the presence of any of his supplicants. The king sits. The guy who's making the petition stands. So what you have metaphorically there is 
the eternal God, sovereign creator of all the universe, takes the role of the supplicant instead of the one sitting on the throne. And it's not Abe saying, God, can't we negotiate and do something about my nephew so that he may not be destroyed? It is God saying to his friend, Abe, don't you care whether I destroy those cities down there or not? You even have a nephew down there in his family. Aren't you going to say anything? Now, that's transformed all my concepts of intercessory prayer. Intercession never begins with you and me. It begins in the heart of God, and God tugs at us and says, aren't you going to say anything? A world's in trouble. And there's no way I can get to it if there isn't somebody who cares. You're the priest. You're the middle person. Now, you see, in that passage where it says, and the Lord stood yet before Abraham, how far will God go to save his world? He'll climb off his cross. Now, this may be wild, but do you know when Jesus looked on Easter Sunday afternoon at Cleopas and his friend and said, it's written in the Old Testament, why didn't you understand that I'd come and die? I've wondered if that's one of the little keys that God is willing to climb off his throne and go to a cross so a world can be redeemed. Because you see, love is a state of heart where you care more about the other person than you do yourself. Do you know the incredible thing? When God wants me to care more about you than I do myself, he's saying, all I want you to do is be just like me. The cross is the measure of his love. There's where you see what love is. Now, could I take a minute and tell you, and you know there's power in this. <laughs> this is the real power, not the kind that stands and dictates. The real power is the power that can take it and keep coming back in love. I was a young preacher, young Methodist preacher. I had four country churches, Elsie and I. And uh, I had trouble finding anybody much who knew anything about New life in Christ, the new birth. Most of the ones that did were past 60, and some Pentecostals and a few Baptists. So I was, uh, you know, wanting to lead my people along into some knowledge, personal knowledge of Christ. And I had one person that I was counting on. She was a Sunday school teacher in one of those four churches. She had an interesting story. She had come out of a non-Christian background. She had ultimately joined a Unitarian Universalist church that didn't believe in the deity of Christ. But when they moved into that community, her husband was a carpenter. They went, the only church convenient was the Methodist church, so they went to the Methodist church. And Margaret was pretty religious, so they asked her if she would teach the adult Bible class. <laughs> so in that Methodist church, they had a Unitarian Universalist teaching the adult Bible class. But that Unitarian Universalist, in order to teach the adult Bible class, had to read the Bible. And so as she started reading the Bible, she began saying, wait a minute. And do you know that Margaret got converted reading, teaching her Bible class, her adult Bible class? And when Christ began to get personal to her, she began to telling the people that they could know him that way, and they got uneasy with her. She was a threat. So they had a meeting in the church and voted that she could not teach the adult Sunday school class anymore. They gave the class to somebody else. Now, when you got four churches, it's like having four kids. It's hard to keep your eyes on all of them at the same time. 
and things happen that you don't know are happening. Suddenly I waked up to the fact that my main, what I felt was my main ally in that church was now gone. So man, I beat a path to her door. It was Saturday. And, uh, country style, I went to the back door and she met me and wept when, when she met me. And I said, Margaret, I'm so sorry. She said, everything has, is ruined. You see, my husband is not a Christian. I've been praying so desperately for Tom. She said he's been coming to Sunday school and he's been coming. And now they do this to me. And she said he's mad as hops. I'm working on him to keep him from taking the chairman of the board and mopping the center aisle with him. So she said the only thing I know to do is we'll have to go to another church. In my heart, I said, Margaret, you can't. She said, you can't ask me to go back into a church where they don't want me. And I said, Margaret, you can run away, but I want to know if that's what God wants you to do. I have a question I want to ask you. You know, now I look back and I'm a little astounded that as green as I was, you know, you get older and smarter and more stupid. Uh, but I looked at her and I said, do you think God could ever give you the grace to where you could go back to that Sunday school class and sit on the third row and pray for the woman who's replaced you as teacher and do it with a loving, clean heart and without hostility? Oh, she said, I can never do that. I said, I know that. But do you think there is enough grace in the cross of Christ to let you bear witness to what a Christian's supposed to be? Oh, she said, I don't know whether I can do that or not. I said, Margaret, how are these people going to know about Christ if you leave? She said, you'll have to pray for me. Well, I did. Margaret went back, sat on the third row, prayed for the woman who took her place, loved her. It was only a few months after that when I left that parish and one of the last days I was there, I had two services in the morning, one at 9.30, uh, 10 miles away, and then that service at 11. So about seven minutes of 11, I pulled into the parking lot to preach at 11 in that church, and the chairman of the board that Tom wanted to mop the middle aisle with <laughs> came running to my window and said, Dennis, have you heard about Tom? I knew instantly he was talking about Margaret's husband. My first thought was, he's dead. And my second thought was, God, you can't let him die yet. <laughs> you can't let him die yet. I said, what, what happened to Tom? He said, Dennis, he's gotten religion. He says he's been converted, saved. I said, how under the sun? So I went and grabbed Tom. And I said, Tom, what happened to you? Ah, oh, he said, is that wife of mine? He said, do you know when they booted her out of the Sunday school class, I was so mad I could have killed a whole bunch of them. 
and said, uh, I was ready to protest. And said, she looked at me and said, Tom, we can't do that. We got to go back. He said, I'll never set foot in that church. She said, we got to go back. And said, you know, she went. Said, last night I couldn't take it anymore. So when she got down on her knees, side of her bed to pray, side of our bed to pray, I went in and got down beside of her and said, Margaret, do you think God could do inside of me what he's done inside you? And set me free from the anger and hostility in me. She said if he could do it for her, he could do it for me. And then as he did. I don't know any other way for redemption to work. But you see what it is? It's the opposite of my way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has caused to meet in him the twistedness of us all. He took our disease, his sickness, our corruption, and started a stream that can clean a person like me. And the amazing thing is, then the person matches the witness. Now, I want to be careful how I say that because we don't want them looking at us. You see, we want to be like a clean glass. Because we're not the picture they need to see. He's the picture, but we need to be clean so he can be seen through. And so he says, this story within the story. I want some people through whom I can be seen. So that on the last day I can say, you rejected them. And when you did, you missed me. Or he can say, you accepted them, so you belong to me. That's what you call identification, isn't it? It's unbelievable, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely unbelievable. But I remember a mathematician who said, it's too good to be true, the gospel. Said one day I thought it's too good not to be true. 